All right, let's get started. So to start, Brandon, can you give us a little introduction about yourself? Like what your career has been so far? Just a basic summary. Sure. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So sure. Um, so my career so far, well, I guess I'll start with where I am now and then I'll give a little bit of the background. But um, so I have a law firm, Odin Law and Media in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I primarily work with video game developers, publishers, and sort of ancillary industries um, related to the video game industry. Uh, it's mostly corporate and intellectual property work. Um, so transactions and a little bit of dispute resolution, but um, kind of veers all over the place depending on what clients need. And if it's something that I can't do, I will find another attorney who can and source that attorney for the client. Um, how I got to this point immediately before opening my firm last year, I was working at a uh, mid-sized law firm with about 26 lawyers that uh, focused on tech and life science startups. And my particular niche there was always on digital media startups and digital media businesses. They are probably the largest group of attorneys doing that work east of the Mississippi. Before that, I was at a law firm working with newspapers and television stations, and that's where I sort of started developing the video game practice. And that was largely because I was interested in the newspaper and TV work. I was not as passionate about it as I thought that I should be. And I also wasn't certain that I'd be able to rely on the newspapers for a long-term career. And so, yeah, so found my way into doing a few startup video game companies, which grew into a few more, which grew into a few bigger ones. And, and now here I am. That's interesting. Uh, also, I feel like we should mention that if you do, if at some point in this uh, session, you say something that sounds like legal advice, we just want to, you want that disclaimer, right? That it's not like real, it shouldn't be considered real legal advice kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah sure. I, I can do the whole disclaimer. Um, nothing in this presentation is legal advice. There is no attorney-client relationship formed between me and anyone else on this uh, program. If there is any doubt about that, feel free to post the question and we will respond to it to clarify that, again, there is no relationship between us, no privilege, and uh, no advice. Yeah, and like lawyers are very regulated and so <laughs> we have to follow these <laughs> things. Uh, so uh, I'm going to open the floor. If anyone has a question, feel free to unmute yourself and jump in. You can also uh, post them through chat. And I will also jump in with questions of my own in case no one has any right out the gate. I see Carolyn unmuted, but I don't hear anything. Might be getting the mic set up. So I guess I'll just, I'll jump in to say that I forgot to mention during the opening that I'm also general counsel to IGDA, which is how Livio and I connected. Um, oh, can you talk about what that means? Yeah, so general counsel for IGDA. So IGDA obviously is a, a large group of kind of a large interconnected web of chapters and volunteers and special interest groups and different programs. And at the core of it, there's sort of this hub and spoke model where the hub is the executive director and the staff. And basically I help them and the board, the central board with legal issues. So whatever comes up, if I can provide insight, I do. So it could be anything from contract negotiations and review to you know, intellectual property questions to um, more specific things that I really can't talk about, right? <laughs> so is that like a, a pro bono work or? Yeah, so I do all of that pro bono for IGDA. Um, it's free. That means free. That's kind of my, so attorneys in most states are encouraged to do some pro bono work. In some states it's mandatory. It's not where I am but we do have an aspirational goal of about 50 hours of pro bono work a year. And I think IGDA has me at double that typically, sometimes even more, um, but it is pro bono. Uh, and then I guess that's not including just the time spent in board calls and board meeting calls and staff calls. 
Um, but the actual like substantive work part is, is a lot of time. So you mentioned you have uh, attorney-client privilege. Uh, are there any like example, like how much can you talk about as far as cases you've seen in the past? Like if I wanted to ask a question of like, do you have any interesting stories that are also, that are also like public <laughs> that you can talk about with, regarding to your work or even just legal cases that you've seen? Yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to talk about cases I'm not involved in, right? Um, the Lindsay Lohan publicity stuff going on in New York, I have, I have no involvement in whatsoever, and I'll talk about that all day long. But um, stuff that I am involved in, unless the client specifically tells me I can talk about it, I'm probably not going to talk about it. And that's typically yeah. true even if there's already been some reporting. Because if I start talking about some of the media coverage as though it's accurate, everyone else will assume that it's accurate, right? Okay. Um, so, so even where there's some public information, I don't want to necessarily be the one to confirm that. And I was going to branch off of that and ask, like, are there any horror stories of like, uh, anything that you've seen either indies or a studio do in the games industry that can potentially be like a cautionary tale to somebody starting out as far as legal risks go? Yeah, definitely. So... Um, I would say two of the biggest legal risks for especially new studios are making sure that your intellectual property is, um, you know, collected into one place and belongs to the business. So for example, if you are a loose collection of students and you're all doing work on one product uh, and you don't have any written agreements, each one of you owns an undivided whole interest in the end result. So what that means is each one of you, can basically shut down the whole project by saying that you don't want the rest of the group to use your stuff anymore. Um, there's also some argument that you would have a, a partnership um, and all of that would belong to the partnership, but then each one of you could take the partnership and run with it because anyone can bind a partnership as long as you're willing to accept an equal split of the revenues from it. So there's a lot of, a lot of difficulty in making sure that the IP belongs where you think that it does. So if you've formed a company um, that's the first step, forming the company and trying to dump all of the IP into that company. So if you form the company, you hire some of those friends as contractors, maybe you give them a revenue split or something like that. Um, the default presumption is going to be that they still own their creations unless there's a written agreement that says they don't. So that's the kind of the biggest thing I would say that I see new companies doing, um, and then another big risk and another thing that I think is, is kind of a rampant problem in the games industry generally is misclassification of workers. So a worker is not an independent. So this is all U.S. law. I guess I should give that disclaimer too. This is all based on U.S. law. If you're international, um, let us know where you're from and, and I can try to weigh in on that to the extent I know, but I might not. But so in, in the U.S., there are kind of two types of workers, contractors and employees. And contractors have to actually be independent. And it doesn't matter what their agreement says. If their agreement says independent contractor and you treat them like an employee, the IRS and the Department of Labor are going to consider them employees and they're going to fine you. And there's a potential civil action against you from the employee. So oh, I've, I've seen that around as well as a it's, it's a, Yeah, it's a huge problem. Um, and frankly, it doesn't really, it doesn't really uh, get addressed very often. You know, you, you see these talks about unionization and things and without opining on whether there should be a union or anything like that, I think we have some fundamental other issues that if we address those, people might not be as angry, right? Oh, interesting. Also, I saw Carolyn, it looks like their mic got working now. Do you want to ask a question? Hi. Yeah. No, um, I was just going to ask about the same kind of uh, things about like what the most common avoidable mistakes are that kind of developers make when they first start out if they're starting their own company. And like maybe what are some mistakes um, they make when they start working for a different company? So with regard to like non-compete clauses and making sure their contracts are um, kind of fair to them and to the company. Yeah. So actually, I see. I see. I think it's Megan in the chat here. Um, if Megan would be so kind as to post a link to the website where I have kind of the top ten things for starting a new business, um, <laughs> yeah. I will task her with that. 
and we'll see if she actually does it. See if she's paying attention. Um, but so that would be like a top 10 checklist of things that any new business game developer otherwise should do. Um, the flip side of that, the question you asked about when you're an employee, um, I think the biggest thing employees should do is read their agreements. Um, that seems to be something that most employees don't do. So that is the number one thing. Read the agreement. If the agreement says something that you think sounds weird or that you don't like, talk to the employer before they hire you. Um, if you if you get hired, you, your leverage is pretty much gone at that point, right? All of your leverage is in the pre-hiring portion where they're trying to get you to work with them. They want you to work there for some reason. So, yeah, so that's... Uh, that's really what I would say is read the agreement, do it before you get hired. After you get hired, there's not much you can do to renegotiate that unless you are particularly valuable to the business. Um, if they just give you like a quick letter that doesn't have any of those things spelled out, that's great for you. Um, ask if there's an employee manual and if you have to sign that or anything like that, check for those kinds of provisions in there too. Non-competes, non-solicits. Um, so to give you kind of a little bit of a background, a non-compete says... You can't work for any company that is competing against this company or on any project that competes with our projects, right? A non-solicit says if you leave, you agree that you won't come after our clients or our customers or our employees. So just to pick names, I, I'm not representing any of these people, but just to pick names, if you were to leave, say, ZeniMax, and you were to go to, say, Facebook, <laughs> and you might want to make sure that when you go, you're not going to be working on the same VR things, um, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so just read the agreements. And, and also, if you can afford to talk to a lawyer, that's great. If you can't, if you are a student, you may have free legal services through your university. A lot of people don't realize that student legal services exists on most major U.S. campuses. And they will read an employment agreement and red flag things for you. Well, that is such an important tip. I just had a flashback to when I was in school. And I think I heard about that once and then never thought about it again. Yeah. I mean, free lawyers are the best kind, right? Yeah. So Jessica asked a question in chat. Uh, I'll read it out loud. Main question that you should ask when negotiating employment, like if you're if someone's considering a contract or uh, getting hired, what are the top of mind questions that they should think of asking? Yeah, so if you're going to be an employee, then you'd want to know things about benefits and if there's if there's an offer that comes with any kind of back-end money, right? If there's any sort of revenue share or any sort of option to purchase equity in the company, uh, you want to make sure you understand what that says, right? So if it says, oh, you're going to get paid, you know, $1,000 a month, and then, but we're going to give you 20% on the back end. Well, 20% of what, right? You want to know what that means. Um, so you want to read those definitions really carefully and make sure that you are um, pushing people towards things that are actually the understanding you think they are. Um, as far as employment, um, if you're an actual employee, then you'd want to ask, yeah, like I said about benefits, health plans, um, hours, all of that kind of stuff. You may also want to consider asking for re relocation benefits you somewhere or, or making you move somewhere. Uh, a lot of companies have a budget for that, but they won't actually fork over any money until the employee specifically asks. Well, that's um, a good point. Like, I, like usually when, when I'm considering any job, I always assume that I know what they even offer. And I, that's a good point that you might not even know that like they might keep it in their wraps just to like save money or something, or they maybe some other problem will obfuscate like what you even have available to you. Yeah. And assuming this audience is mostly students, like don't ask for $20,000 in relocation benefits, <laughs> right? But you might just say like, is there any money available to help me with the move? And if there is, then they may offer you some of it, right? And it may be like, oh, submit receipts and we'll see what we can do after the fact. But that's still better than nothing, right? Um, to the second piece of the question about freelancers, remote, and contract workers doing in that sense, this is where, this is where we see a lot of the, the negotiating power go out the window, right? If you're a freelancer or a contract worker, unless you have a specific skill or talent that is the reason they're coming for you instead of any other freelancer um, you don't have a lot of leverage. 
the leverage you do have is in your talent. And again, it's before you sign that first agreement. But the, the, the questions you should ask, again, probably with freelancers, this is, this is even more important, are about compensation, right? Um, about looking at rev shares and things like that and making sure that you actually understand how they work. Um, if you are looking at a, uh, an agreement that assigns all rights to the other party, and you're the contractor, you would want to ask for a portfolio right so that you can still showcase your work. Because if you don't get that yes. right and and then you go out and you showcase a portfolio, you know, let's say you do some contract work for, you know, Riot Games or something. And then you go to GDC and you're showing your portfolio and the reviewers from Riot Games and they see work in your portfolio that is for one of their games. That seems like it would be really great, right? Because, oh, you can show I worked on your game even. But in reality, you might be showing them that you've breached your agreement with them by sharing that work outside of the contract. So you'd want to ask for that portfolio license. And the middle ground that is usually where companies will end up is that they'll give you the portfolio license. You know, they want you to get more work. They'll give you the portfolio license, but under the condition that you don't actually put it in your portfolio until the release of the title. So you can't go out and showcase character art for a game that's not released yet. Yeah, and there's also the case of when a game just never ships, like it gets canceled or whatever, or the company dies, and you still want to be able to showcase what you've done on it. Yeah, and if the company is totally gone, this again, this is not legal advice, <laughs> yeah. but but then it's a question of if the company is totally gone, it's a question of who's the rights holder now, and if there's if there is a rights holder now, are what's the likelihood of enforcement, right? What's the likelihood that anyone is going to care that it's in your portfolio? Yeah. Um, but again, not legal advice. Um, because in some cases, it, you know, maybe the rights holder is a is a wealthy person who like a publisher. Is, yeah, it's, it, maybe it's a publisher. Maybe it's a wealthy individual who's now spiteful at the games industry and is going to sue anybody in it who he can. You know, there's there's just there's no there's no substitute for individual um, facts and legal advice, right? Uh, I have a little horror story to share of my own uh, without yeah. without naming names. Uh, I did work for a client who took like art assets from a previous project that he worked on and we we made the project we shipped it and everything and then they realized actually they didn't have the legal rights to the art assets that he used so like he made these art assets for a game that never shipped and he thought that he like well they they never shipped the company went down under no one cares right and it turns out there were still rights holders who cared about the art assets and they were uh, in negotiations for uh, basically how to reconcile the fact. And so they agreed to do a uh, rev I believe, uh, royalties. Uh, so like every time they sell something uh, for per copy, they pay a certain amount percentage of the sale to the original rights holder. And it was very confusing because like he, uh, He's like, I made this art, and I made it for a comp for a game that never shipped. Who like no like he thought he was in the right, but he wasn't. So that was a painful moment for that company. Yeah, and and probably he got paid for it, or he was promised payment on the sale of the game. Um, and so there was what's called consideration, right? It wasn't an assignment of his intellectual property. It was not. He wasn't handing it over for nothing. He got paid or the promise of payment, and that's what lured him into turning it over. Um, if he had signed an agreement that turned everything over and said that he would get paid $500 for doing it or, you know, 5,000 or 5 million, whatever it is, and then they never paid, uh, he'd have a better case for keeping it or delivering it to someone else. Um, but if they delivered on their promises, even if their promise was, we'll pay you 5% of backend sales, and then there were no sales, they still delivered on that promise, right? They didn't promise that they would have any sales they promised they'd pay you five percent of any sales they did have so um you got to be careful about that kind of thing yeah so i just got texted a question by a friend who can't join uh his question is what kind of case do companies have when other companies make games with very similar game systems or interface an example would be players unknown battleground versus fortnite like what kind of cases do they have to defend their their original stuff so I'll give a I'll give a really general answer and then I'll give a specific answer that's about PUBG and Fortnite. Um, the really general answer is not much, um, unless they are so 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 similar that it's 
pretty clear that they're deliberately making the same game. If they aren't using the same art and they're not copying the programming, so they're replicating the programming with their own programming and they're not copying the art, um, they're creating their own art assets, game mechanics typically can't be protected either by copyright or patent or anything else. Um, so the mechanic of having a battle royale mode is not protectable. Um, so Fortnite and PUBG are very different games, right? They're the same mechanic, but they're very different iterations of that mechanic, which is why at a surface level, there's really no cause of action there. Um, you can make 10,000 different games of chess. The mechanic of the way chess works is not protectable. Um, the interesting thing that I think we will eventually get more information about, but has only been limited public so far uh, in some print media uh, or online media, uh, is that Blue Hole, the company's PUBG, oh, you're, has... you're losing connection a bit. Uh, can you hear me? Am I here? Uh, it's just really distorted. Mm. Maybe plug your mic back in and something. Mute and unmute. How about now? Oh, that's much better. Much better? Yeah. Okay. So so the the PUBG company, Bluehole, the company that makes PUBG and Epic are already in a contractual relationship. So uh, Epic makes Unreal, the engine, right? And uh, PUBG uses Unreal. So everything that was built for PUBG was built in Unreal, meaning that at some point with Epic providing the backend support, they have access to a lot of that information about what what Bluehole did specifically to what PUBG Corp, I guess they call it now, um, what Bluehole and PUBG Corp specifically did to customize the engine and to build programming tool sets and things like that. Um, the argument that Bluehole put out publicly is that they think that Epic used some of the stuff they made to make um, Fortnite, which obviously changes the case, right? Then it's not a case about copying a game mechanic, then it's a case about copying code and programming that was meant to be secret under an agreement that you already had in place. Um, yeah, so short version is oh. if you want to go out and make a game about a plumber that jumps down pipes and jumps on mushrooms, you're probably fine. But if you go and you take Mario assets, you're going to get sued. That's or you might get sued. I didn't even know about that. <laughs> As, as in, like, the, the case between, like, uh, the PUBG Corp and uh, Epic. Any other questions? I have some questions, but I don't want to hog all the time. Okay, case, I'll ask away. Uh, I wanted to kind of shift the focus into uh, more of the... Like your person, I want to ask more personal questions. <laughs> so, your you said your your career path was kind of you you started out as interested in potentially newspaper stuff, working in media, uh, and then you went and got a law degree. Uh, how was that like? So, so what's getting a law degree like? Like basically, how did you decide to go there? Uh, what op what drew you to that field? Sure. I, I think that like a lot of people who went to law school, I went to law school um, for lack of a better option, which seems silly to say. Um, but I had finished a four-year degree and I didn't really want to. So I, I have a journalism background. I was a journalism major and I didn't really want to be a journalist. I also um, had school loans that I didn't think I would ever repay on a journalist salary. Um, so... I just put it off for three years and went to law school, right? I didn't, I didn't go out into the working world. I went to law school and at the time, uh, it was sort of a booming economy. Everybody thought, oh, you get a law degree, that's good for anything. Um, and then I graduated into a recession and ended up doing a little bit of work that was not really what I thought I would be doing after my first year of law school. So in law school, I sort of tried to bridge the journalism media background and, and law and focus on entertainment law and media law classes so that I could eventually try to get a career in that. But then I graduated, like I said, into the recession, ended up doing 
insurance defense for a little while and then pivoting into newspapers when I saw an opening and had a, a connection into that firm. And how did you start gravitating towards game stuff? Yeah, so I mentioned this a little bit. I was working at the newspaper firm um, and I had always had a, a background that I, I wanted to do since law school. I wanted to do entertainment work, right? And entertainment is a big broad category, sort of like honestly, video game law is a big broad category. So entertainment, video game law um, is not really a type of law, but it's just an industry focus. Um, but so while I was working in the media firm doing newspapers, TV, traditional media, I really, I wanted to work in, in more emerging marketplaces in stuff that was more interesting and would be around longer. Um, and I had a history of playing video games my whole life. <laughs> and the first client I got in that space was really just kind of happenstance. Like we happened to meet each other out and he said, well, you know, I, I have a trademark issue I need some help with. And there was another company that was trying to name a game the same name as his game studio. Um, so we, so yeah, <laughs> I've like seen, the exact I've seen stuff like that. Yeah. So we, we convinced them to back down. But after that, I went, well, how many more of them, how many more of these developers are there around here? Um, and I really didn't realize how big the, the Raleigh market is. So to you students, if you are interested in a job in an unconventional location, um, you know, look at Raleigh. Don't just look at Los Angeles and San Francisco. Um, there are jobs in Raleigh. North Carolina. North Carolina. I think IBM is there too. You say IBM? Yeah, I think they might be there. Yeah, so IBM has a small office here. Um, Lenovo has a bigger office here, actually. Okay. But yeah, there's a lot of tech companies, Citrix, Red Hat. Yeah. Just got a chat question. Oh, okay. So we, I see the question and then I, so I'll repeat it. What sort of differences are there between traditional media law and video game law? So anything that would apply in traditional media law still applies in video game law. Video game law has additional layers. So traditional media law would focus on so just the kind of the basic business formation and getting going stuff is going to be the same in both industries. The, um, the agreements and things like that are where things really diverge. And traditional media companies spend a lot more time and effort worrying about things like libel and defamation. Um, so they spend a lot of time trying to get the facts correct and making sure they do all of their research. Um, where video games, it's creative work, right? You're not trying to get facts, you're trying to create things. So the difference there is more of an emphasis on, especially if you're doing content clearance, which I do a little bit of, but at, at the level of the companies I'm working with, they usually can't afford a ton of that. Um, but content clearance is where you're going through game assets and you're going through designs and you're trying to make sure that everything is original and it's not infringing on something else or that there's no risk there. So someone, in the Grand Theft Auto development team's job was content clearance. And that's why the cars don't have real car names, right? And that person either looked at the Lindsay Lohan character and went, this is fine, or looked at it and didn't make a call, right? Maybe they didn't even look at it. But um, so video game law is more focused on making sure things are original and creative. Um, and then on the contract side of things, the publishing agreements in video game law versus the publishing agreements in a traditional sort of book media world, they use an entire different language, basically. Um, video game developers don't think of things, don't think of money paid to you to develop a game as an advance, but really it's sort of similar to a literary advance. The difference being that if you don't deliver, your publisher can probably claw back that money and sue you for it, where a true literary advance they can't. But so the contracts are very, very different. Um, there's some similar economics, but, but the actual drafting of them, just industry practice is hugely different. Yeah, I remember hearing about how in the burnout games, they, the reason they didn't get licensed cars was because no car manufacturer wanted to pay, wanted to have their cars be crashed up and banged up and all that. <laughs> Whereas their game is all about distorting cars and breaking them up. 
Yeah. So there's there was a thing. I, I don't remember who posted it. Somebody posted a thing to Twitter. It may have been Cliffy B recently. That was something like, oh, you want to work with licensed assets? Great. Um, or you want to work with our, our car license? Okay, that's that's great. We want our car in your game, but our car has to be the fastest. It can't crash. <laughs> and, 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 and it must always win. <laughs> yeah. And I see Jessica's moving to Raleigh, so that's awesome. Uh, if you are interested, you can follow the Raleigh IGDA on Twitter and Facebook. Get in touch with us that way. Um, hopefully, we will be doing more things by June. We've been a little inactive recently, but so I have two questions. What's your favorite part of your work, and your least favorite part? So I, I think my favorite part is occasionally I get to actually play video games and call it work, which is fun. Um, <laughs> It doesn't happen that often. Usually developers don't want to pay you to sit and play their game, uh, but occasionally I get to do it. Or if I'm at a meeting, I have one client specifically that I'm thinking of that I go to their office pretty frequently. And every time I go to their office, they make me play a Smash Brothers tournament with them. And I always fail. <laughs> so much, they're, they're so much better at because they do it like every Friday and I'm terrible at it. Um, but they use it as a, a way to make fun of their lawyer, which is fun. Um, but and I don't bill them for that time, obviously. But um, but yeah, I think that the most fun thing um, or my favorite part of the job is being able to play games and honestly to be able to see some of the super creative stuff that some of my clients are working on. Um, so actually, for example, one of the one of the um, writing team and creative team from. Um, Edith Finch is a client of mine on one of her other businesses. And so seeing her win an IGF award this year was really cool. Um, nice. And then Heart Machine, which did Hyperlight Drifter as a client. So seeing them win an award a couple of years ago was pretty cool too. Um, yeah, so working with clients that are doing interesting things just kind of makes the drudgery of pushing paper more interesting, right? Because you feel like you're in some way a part of that, right? Not really, but you feel like it. You get to justify it to yourself that way. Um, and then the least favorite part of my job, I think probably is when clients can't pay their bill and I'm asking them to pay it anyway. Oh, right? yeah. I, <laughs> it, I mean, and I'm sure that, it, you know, if you're doing freelance work, you have this happen too sometimes where yep. you've, you've done something, you believe in the project, but at the end of the day, you have rent to pay, right? Yeah, and whenever that happens, like I've 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 often like refused to make another take another step in the project until pay. So like just like that's where, like where my main leverage is. And the client's like, but we don't want to find someone else. And I'm like, then pay me. <laughs> yeah, and and to a certain point, I I guess I could do that too. But there there are as you pointed out earlier, there are ethics rules about when a lawyer can just stop working and just refuse, right? I see, because then um, you can put them into real peril. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If if I've been doing 90% of, the, or if I've gotten you 99% of the way through something and then I just stop working, um, <laughs> you know, that's a real disadvantage to you. Um, and I, I honestly, the rule there is probably in place so that I can't um, do 99% of the work and then, um, you know, extort you and blackmail you for the other 1%, right? Yeah. Any other questions? We're about halfway through. I kind of wanted to just hear more about, uh, I'm a big fan of horror stories, like things that have gone wrong legally. <laughs> With, with games in and around the industry. Uh, by the way, what about uh, non-game projects that you've worked on or been aware of? Yeah, so non-game stuff goes wrong just as often as game stuff. Um, I had a client a few years ago that was trying to put in a bar. They are a bar owner. <laughs> and the, the building next door uh, was owned by a competing bar owner, but there was no bar next door. It was just owned by a competing bar owner. And he 
the guy went back into the property records and figured out that the two buildings were part of the same um, homeowners association, which was weird because they were commercial buildings, but apparently you can have a homeowners association that's just commercial buildings. And so he brought a lawsuit to enforce certain covenants to say that you couldn't have a bar. Um, and then two years later, they settled it and the bar is still open. But two years of litigation and money out the window. Um, so that that was interesting but yeah in the games world and so i don't do a lot of those cases i try not to this was when i still had bosses and my bosses got to tell me some things that i had to do um so not having bosses is awesome if you can if you can do it i recommend it um but yeah in the games world you know the the horror stories are usually things where they could have been prevented with a little bit of preparation um so, for example, you, I, I mentioned that you want to make sure your IP is in one place. So the horror story is you release a game and then you get an email from a lawyer or a letter from a lawyer representing someone you used to work with that says, hey, we noticed you're using the music I did. Um, we would like to know how you intend to compensate us for that. And in your mind, you might be thinking, well, I already paid you for that. But then you go back and you look at the agreement and there's no express assignment or you don't have an agreement with that person. Well, then you're in a tough place, right? Because they could theoretically say, go back through the game, strip out all of my music, strip out all of my sounds. Um, or, you know, I'm going to sue you for copyright infringement. Or pay me a royalty of 50% of the sales. And like, those are your two options at that point. You don't have a lot of leverage to fix that. And I've seen that happen. Um, I've seen trademark issues come up where someone will name the game something. I had one client who tried to name something that it turned out the NRA had a magazine with the same name. Um, so the NRA sent a cease and desist. Um, so we had to debate with the NRA about whether we should be allowed to go forward with that game name. And it, it was a smaller indie company that had put a little bit of effort into marketing their new title. And if they, if they had been a big company and spent the same amount of money, they would have just walked away from it. But because they felt like they were, they'd gotten all the goodwill they were ever going to get, they felt like they had to kind of push back. And, and so ultimately we got the NRA to back off, but so naming issues come up. Um, yeah, I, I think I hear that like in many companies when they file ceases and assist, they don't really think too much about it. They just have like some person in an office, like just Googling and, stuff and as soon as they find something like oh yet another cease and desist to send out and then like if you push back on it if you have a if you have a pretty strong case uh usually they're like oh yeah we didn't put too much thought into that original thing i wonder if that's actually true or if that's just something that i heard that was wrong no so that's definitely true um i think you're even being optimistic assuming that there's a person there sending out the cease and desist oh, like a robot um, instead yeah there are web crawlers that go out and look for um, images that are similar to copyrighted images or trademark images, um, and then just automatically generate cease and desists and send them out. I mean, YouTube is basically that now. Yeah, YouTube has that. YouTube also has the um, the content ID system that will look for infringing content and, and in some cases just monetize it for the re the real rights holder, so that you don't even know that you know you don't get a takedown. The video stays up, but somebody else is making money off of it. Um, but yeah, so I've got I've had lots and lots of clients get those letters where it's pretty clear that it's just something crawling the internet. And in some cases, the best response there is to not respond. Um, so, for example, I had a client get one of those letters that had it had a name and an address, and the name and the address were not my client. They were a directory service, and the directory service forwarded it to my client. So my client was still like the people who sent the cease and desist had no idea who my client actually was. They just sent it to the directory service and the directory service sent it to us. So we just didn't respond on the theory that if they wanted to sue us, they still probably could have. Um, I think we ultimately would have won, but I think if they wanted to sue us, they would have had to basically sue what's called a John Doe suit where you sue and you don't have a defendant. You just sue for the sake of suing. And then you use the court process and the discovery process to send out subpoenas. 
So you send a subpoena to the directory service and then they would have found out who we were. But we kind of knew based on what they were saying that they weren't going to go through all of that effort just to find out who we were, let alone then actually sue us um, in a case that wasn't very strong. So, yeah, so we just sat on that, right? That's pretty technical. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of, and so when you get a cease and desist, you don't react right away, right? Read it, read it carefully. Look at things like who's it actually addressed to, which is really simple, and it's not even a legal thing. It's just about you know the strategy side. Um, but read it, read it carefully. Um, if you can afford to talk to a lawyer about responses, do that. But if you can't, read it, read it carefully. Then sit on it, right? Wait a day, then read it again because you might notice something in it the second time that you didn't notice the first time. Um, if you're getting letters for, you know, you put up a website and you used a stock image, and you get a letter that says, hey, you know, we own this stock image. Go back and look at your original license if you bought it from Getty Images or something like that, because it may be that the photographer has hired this lawyer to do crawling and they don't even know that it's on the images, right? Yeah. Somebody else may have submitted it there. Or it may be that... Your voice is getting weird again. I don't know why we fixed it last time. Is that better? Uh, not better. How about now? Oh, that's much better. Okay. That time I just kind of tapped the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, I'll have to figure out what's doing that. But yeah, as you were saying, like the the person who issued it might not even know it's on Getty Images or something. Yeah, and there may be it may be that there's a, a lawyer or something that is sending these cease and desists on behalf of the client, and the client may have put it on Getty and not told the lawyer. So you know, sometimes just sending over your license agreement is the way to get out of those. I had an example I wanted to bring up, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> oh, I remember now. So there's a lot of game jams on Itch.io, and Itch.io is a storefront. In even though like, so like I I've made two game jam games that were clearly riffs off of actual intellectual property. Like I made a Pokemon clone. The whole idea of the game was designed to be a bad Pokemon clone, but we actually used. I don't know if we use the word Pokemon in the name, but but our artist actually drew Squirtle and Charmander in it and Pikachu. And so Nintendo issued a DMCA takedown on our little dumb game jam game. And I'm like, but is this is just a game jam game. Well, that's when I remembered, yeah, Itch.io is a storefront. Even if you put something up for free and you don't charge a penny for it, it's still you still gotta comply. Yeah, so actually that that is an interesting point because I think that's something that students especially struggle with. Um, if you are doing a project and you're infringing on people's copyrights, it doesn't really matter what you're using it for. Uh, even if you're releasing it for free, even if you're not releasing it, you're just sharing it with a few friends, still copyright infringement. You can still get sued. Uh -huh. um, if you're doing it purely to learn, you're not going to share it with anyone. Yes, it's still copyright infringement, um, but if it never leaves your computer, who's going to know that you did it, right? So if you're just, you know, creating a Pac-Man clone to see if you have the skills to create a Pac-Man clone, that's one thing. But yeah, you, like you said, you put it on Itch.io and Nintendo's going to notice, right? Um, if you, if you're, especially in, in that case where, you know, there are some companies that that are like the IP bears, right? So you don't poke the bear. Those companies are companies like Nintendo and Disney. Um, Square Enix is another one. Like, don't touch their assets. They're going to come after you. Even claiming, like, parody is not quite going to work out, is it? It, it may. Um, it depends so the downside, on how you handle it. Yeah, so the downside to claiming parody or fair use, and, and we can talk about fair use if you want to, um, but even claiming parody or fair use... The difficulty there is that it's a defense. So you can't argue that until you're already in court. Um, like if they send you a cease and desist letter or uh -huh. they send a DMCA takedown notice and your response is, oh, this is fair use. The next thing they're going to send is, is a summons and you're going to be sued. Um, and then you're going to have to pay to defend yourself. Even if you don't hire a lawyer to defend yourself, 
you're going to have to pay in the sense that you're not going to be, you're not going to like the amount of time it takes away from the time you'd like to be spending learning or building games or playing games or, you know, sitting on a beach, whatever. It takes a lot of time to get sued. Um, and fair use is a defense. So even if you have a perfect fair use argument, it's a defense. So you get into court, you argue, well, hey, yeah, this was infringing, but I have this defense. And then you have to hope that the judge and the jury, judge or the jury, um, agree with you and say, yeah, that is a perfect fair use defense. I agree. Uh, because there's still a chance that they'll say, no, no, that's infringement and it's not fair use. And fair, fair use has a, um, a four-factor test that sometimes gets expanded significantly broader than that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a defense. You shouldn't rely on it when you're developing because it's, it's a good way to find yourself out legal fees and court costs without anything to show for it. Yeah, and um, unless the idea is actually centered around like being a parody, then I, I personally think that as a creative constraint, it can probably lead to a better product if you just try not if you just try to avoid the whole thing entirely. Yeah, so if you set out to make a parody, um, it, you can do it, but it's still a matter of like risk tolerance, right? So understand going in that there's a good chance you'll get sued and that there's a good chance that it um, it's going to cost you some money. So if to take it out of the video game world, if you're Weird Al, right? Weird Al makes parodies of lots of songs. He always gets permission from the record company before he does it. He never goes and makes a parody. Even though it's clearly parody, he never relies on that. He always gets an agreement in writing beforehand. But he's um, also got a lot of leverage. He has a ton of leverage, um, but the flip side of that is he's also definitely doing parody, right? If you um, if you have no leverage and you are not an established parody artist, and you set out and you make what you call a parody, that doesn't necessarily mean the rest of the world is going to see it as a parody. Certainly doesn't mean that the person who owns the IP is going to see it as a parody. Um, and that's really what matters, right? At the end of the day, like. If you don't have any leverage and you don't have any money, can you really afford to defend the lawsuit that comes because your parody wasn't quite parody enough to convince the rights holder it was a parody? Yeah. Not, not saying you ultimately lose the lawsuit. You might ultimately win the lawsuit. But do you really want to spend the time and effort fighting that? And so yeah. if the answer to that is yes, by all means, make the parody, right? Well, so Carolyn asked... How do you see video game law as changing over the next decade? What legal issues are going to be bigger in the future? Yeah, so I think uh, there's, and I apologize in advance, there's going to be some buzzwords here. Um, I think privacy is definitely more on U.S. regulators' radar than it ever has been before. Yeah. Um, Europe is already kind of jumping ahead on a lot of that with GDPR. Um, but I think with the whole Facebook thing and Cambridge Analytica and, and all of the stuff that's now affecting politics, I think that privacy and data privacy are going to be more on politicians' radars and regulators' radars, which means that eventually there's going to be more of a video game privacy industry than there is now. Um, and... You know, you may not be collecting any data in, in your games, but there are games companies who are collecting a lot of data. Uh, and there's also, you know, the idea that even if you're not collecting any data in the game, if you're doing any marketing for the game and you're doing any data collection on your website, well, you're still a data custodian. So I think privacy is going to be big. Um, I think AR and VR issues, we're going to eventually see courts tackle at this point. They haven't really even addressed them, but I think when they do, they're going to try to apply traditional frameworks of, things like liability and IP and assault, and they're going to have to figure out how those things are changed, if at all, in AR and VR environments. Um, and then I think the third thing that will probably come to video games in a way that is at least disruptive, if not legally disruptive, is blockchain technology and how that affects things like in-game transactions. Um, it may not affect the law in any way at all, but I think that lawyers will say that it does yeah i really agree with the the privacy one uh, like i'm definitely on the side of i do think if 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 the american uh, 
basically if Congress doesn't uh, pass anything about it, I feel like they should because there's so many problems, especially like when you hear about certain hacks, you're like, that sounds like it should be criminally negligent to store data in that way, uh, and to store important user information in that way. Like, especially with what happened with the Sony hack, like we just find that uh, in many of these really bad cases, uh, like they're okay. Like even even like consumer confidence in many of these companies actually doesn't go far that doesn't move that far away when companies are found to be like really negligent of their personal data. And so I don't think things are going to improve until they are forced to reckon with actual laws. Yeah, there's there's an interesting um, like phrase that people toss around where they say like if you look at the way data privacy and, and just uh, honestly in general regulation work, um, basically in the U.S., Americans by default don't trust their government and do trust private enterprise. And in Europe, that's the opposite. So in Europe, people trust their governments and don't trust companies, which is, I think, why you see things like privacy laws that affect private business. And you don't see those in the U.S. Um, that's not obviously, that's not universally true. That's stereotyping two enormous diverse groups of people. Yeah. Um, but I think the market kind of plays that out. Um, and then, yeah, so one other thing I would I wanted to mention, since we only have a few minutes left, and this is sort of in the in the bigger in the future, and this, I think, is the near future, um, loot box regulation, right? Um, that's coming. It, it's, a question right. Of, it's a question of where it happens first, but that's going to happen. Um, we're going to see regulation on loot boxes. And we already have regulations on gambling that may or may not be being violated by loot boxes in their present form. But I think we're going to see regulators in some places be more explicit about those. But I don't know that it's going to be a bigger issue. I think it's just going to be one that, you know, developers actually look at now, where before they just kind of thought, oh, we're games. We're different. We don't have to do this. We don't have to comply with these laws. Yeah, didn't Big Fish Games just have a ruling against them? Yeah, yeah, big one. Their, their <laughs> office is here in Seattle. Yeah, so they, um, and actually they, I was at a panel on, this on loot box regulations that was a, a panel of lawyers in an audience of lawyers talking about loot box regulations and just kind of letting us know what the state of the art is and where things they th where they think things are headed um and one of the panelists was from big fish games so that was that was fun <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah I, I mean frankly like that was a casino right it was a casino game yeah um that i i think when you're making games that are things like a casino game, I think it's easier for the judge or the jury to be convinced that it's gambling, right? Yeah. If, you, if you're making something where what you win is a skin or you win, you know, a different color rifle or whatever it is, it's, it's harder for them to make that leap. Cool. So we have like five minutes left. This is our last chance to ask questions. Last chance. So I guess I'll I'll ask a question to everybody else. Um, so this is a group mostly of students, right? So I guess I would just ask, like, how many of you? And and you can respond or not respond in the comments if you want to. If you don't respond, it's no big deal. I'll, I'll just take it really personally. Um, you can you can let me know how many of you when you get done with school are planning on going into a job in a triple a studio an indie studio serious games or starting your own studio so those would be like the four answers i guess five something else so triple a indie serious games some um, your own studio or something else i'm just curious I'm always surprised by how many students I meet who tell me that they're interested in starting their own studio after graduating. Or I meet people who have already done that. Like when I was a student, I didn't even feel like that was an option for me. I just never thought about it. All right, so it looks like Ian is in Indy. That's fun.
Megan refuses to answer. <laughs> By the way, does Megan work with you? Uh, so Megan is actually a contractor for me. <laughs> yes. I will so, mark you as a professional in our roles. Um, so Megan is awesome. If any of you have an indie studio that you have already started or you start, so Jessica, for example, if you're here in Raleigh and, and you are starting your own studio and you need someone to help with some marketing things, definitely reach out to Megan. She's awesome. Yeah, so I see a lot of people say they want to get experience before they start their own their own studio. And I I think, you know, they're all great options. I think that's that's the path I took, not in games, but in law. Um so obviously I feel like it worked for me or it's working for me so far. Um but it worked for me too. Yeah, the only thing I would say there is make sure that when you're working in another company that you're learning what they're doing but you're also questioning why so you're not just getting stuck in the in the systems of, of a triple a studio and then getting out on your own and not having triple a budgets right yeah and also if you're working uh outside of either games or anywhere else uh i think it's really important to have like the the most good faith effort to like be good at that particular job and enjoy it, even if it's not what you want to do for like in the long term. I just feel like I, I've seen people firsthand who just kind of shoot themselves in the foot when it comes to their jobs. And like a potential job that they have might be an incredible opportunity, but because it's not games, they, they get really like hung down by it and they just don't perform as well and they don't get as much out of that job as they could have. And it's kind of sad. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, and if you're th so this is this is a piece of legal information, not advice, but legal information. If you're working in a AAA studio or even like a midsize, not quite AAA studio, um, you've probably signed some sort of invention assignment. Make sure you read that really carefully because that's that's going to get their that's where they're going to get their um, their interest in your creations. And you want to make sure you read that carefully because if you're trying to start your own business on the side. Um, you may find that you don't actually have any rights in your own creations. So yeah. if you're working at a AAA studio and then three months after you leave that studio, you're releasing a game, that studio may actually come back to you and say, hey, did you work on any of this while you were working for us? And then you'll have to justify, you know, well, I did, but I was on my own laptop on my own time. I never brought it to work. I didn't use any work tools or software or anything like that. Yep. Um, so just be careful about that stuff. And even, I think there are even some of those clauses that are written in a way that it doesn't even matter if you use company resources, as long as like, you're getting paid full time by the company, they think they can claim anything that you do, even on your personal time. Yeah. And that, that's a good point. Um, they may be drafted that way. Uh, and that's when you would want to think, think carefully about if you want to push back on that before you start. There's there's a good chance they if it's a AAA studio and you're right out of school they'll just say well no if we if you don't want to sign this then just don't work here right um, but if you are working specifically in North Carolina and in many other U.S. states but definitely in North Carolina there is a statute that says even if there's a clause in your employment agreement that says to the contrary if you're working on things at home with no company equipment with no company information. Um, in your own time, so you're not taking time off to do it, um, or you are taking time off, you're not getting paid by the company while you're doing it, um, that that does not belong to your employer, that belongs to you. That's good to know. I know I used to work at Microsoft and everybody always talked about that. Like I'd meet random people who are like, I'm working on this thing, but don't tell anybody. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> it would have yeah. been, it would have been uh, better if they just had like more legal clarity about what was or wasn't allowed. Um, and I think Microsoft made themselves pretty clear. And they have a bunch of HR people who are eager to answer those questions. 
but still people are, are very cautious regardless. Yeah, and, and the right time to talk about those things is when you're first starting to think about it, right? If you're if you're worried that you're going to say, oh, I might want to work on this game on the side and that your employer will say, no, we'll own that, you probably don't want to work for that employer anyway, frankly. Um, or or you need to not work on anything on the side. Those are your choices, right? If If you can go to your employer and you can say, hey, I'm looking at working on this thing on the side, this is why I don't think it'll interfere with my work. Um, a lot of employers, believe it or not, even if their agreements say that it belongs to them, a lot of employers will be totally fine with that. So we're out of time. Thanks for meeting with us. This was pretty great. Uh, Jessica just posted a few more things, but if you want to answer, you can answer it in chat, in text chat. Or just Sounds good. I'll let you get back to your work. <laughs> <laughs> or it's, it's <laughs> the end of your day now, actually. I'm on the West Coast. Yeah, well, I've got I've got probably an hour or two more to do, but yeah, it should be the end of my day, right? <laughs> Thanks again. Yep, thank you. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, I can post your Twitter URL. Thank you. I'm going to stop the recording now. Have a good day, everybody.